thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. We are now in the, um, we're still in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Anyone uh, joining us new tonight? Welcome, welcome. Uh, we are, this is the fifth lecture and we have, um, we are, we're working our way through uh, the book of Revelation. Um, Michael is not with us and uh, he may not be able to, he will? All right. Michael usually sits right here and he has a whole series of CDs on the topics we've covered in order to prepare for the book of Revelation. Out of those, I, I very strongly recommend that when you see him, you ask for the CDs regarding the covenant and the four senses of scripture, if nothing else. There's about 40 CDs, but those are very important. So, Tonight, we are actually celebrating the Feast of Saints Andronicus, Probus, and Terracus, three martyrs of the early church who died um, under um, the second Roman persecution. And I think it's very, very appropriate for our, uh, for our study tonight. So we ask them and all the saints in heaven to pray for us as we continue to study this book and learn about the Lord, His Church, and the liturgy. Turn, please, to chapter 1, verse 12. We're, gonna, we're going to cover, God willing, 12 through 20 tonight. Context. St. John is on the island of Patmos. He has been exiled there. And while he's there... It is the day's Lord, it is, it is the day of the Lord, which is Sunday. He's in the spirit, which means that he has a supernatural experience. Um, and in that state, he is given a prophecy, a prophecy from the Lord. And he heard a voice, and he's right now about to turn around and look at the one who is speaking to him. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and, a, and with a golden girdle around his breast. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now write what you see, what is, what is to take place hereafter. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, 
and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Recall from the previous lecture that the Lord is commanding him to write to seven churches, seven specific churches, and these will be the subject beginning next week. The first thing that is very striking in this vision is the appearance of the Lord. I don't think anyone here has any doubt that the person speaking is Jesus Christ. But where we have a disconnect is with the appearance. I mean, you look around, but the portraits we have, for instance, the portraits of the chapel of Divine Mercy, here's Jesus, right? He doesn't look anything like that, does he? I mean, the two sharp edged sword and the eyes flaming like fire, and it, it, it's spooky. I mean, think about it. It's not pleasant. This is not a pleasant vision of the Lord. Anybody doesn't agree here? It's not something we feel comfortable with doing. Right? Compared to the, to the um, portrait of the Divine Mercy Chaplet or some of the other pictures we have of the Lord, this one is not... Let me put it this way. I don't think any one of you would, would hang a portrait like this in their living room or right in face of the entrance. When somebody opens the door, they have that facing them, would you? In fact, you don't find that portrait in any of our churches. Isn't that interesting? So we really want to understand why is he appearing like that? He picked that appearance. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Verse 12. By the way, if you're following with your Bibles, which I hope you are, and if you don't, please buy a Bible if you don't have one. And if you have a Bible, dust it off and bring it with you. I am using the translation from the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. This is, the one I have is from Ignatius. Scepter also, um, uh, Scepter, which is the, uh, the publisher for uh, the Navarre Bible, has also another version. This is the Bible I'm using. If you're using a different translation, the wording may sound very different. So please get this one so you can follow with me. This is called a literal translation meaning it tends to be very close to the original versus other types of translation which are called dynamic where instead of translation you're getting an interpretation. Uh, I think the most interesting of them all is one translation where they decided, you know, Jerusalem, the Middle East and all that is too foreign so they, they, they basically put Bethlehem in Alabama and they got the, 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 the apostles speaking in Southerner. To, to reflect the Galilean accent. It's very interesting. So you can get various translations, so please pick this one so you can follow with me. Don't be confused on top of the confusing text by the confusing translation. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Now this, 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 is, uh, this should be understood literally. He actually turned around. What is striking for us is that he turns to see a voice. Um, this is called a metonymy, M-E-T-O-N-I-M-I, -E -I -I, metonymy, which is a stylistic um, uh, aspect of this writing where the voice is representing the whole person. So when he sees the voice, he means the person. But there is an insistence on the voice, and uh, St. John does it often in the Apocalypse, where he says, I heard and then I saw. We've explained that last week because we first have to receive the faith and receive the faith in hearing, by hearing it. And when we've internalized the faith, God opens our eyes and then we see. That's the order. Whereas we would like it to be the other way around, most of the time. We want God to show us. Right? It's like we're all from Missouri. You know? Show me. And then, I'll have, and then I'll sit down and listen to what you have to teach me. Show me first. No, it works the other way around. You work on your faith, and then you see. Okay? That's why he insists on it. He turns around, 
And then he sees, for instance, we also, we will see in chapter 22, verse 8, he writes, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. He insists on it very much. The voice that was speaking to me, as I said, it's a metonymy. I'm not going to uh, go over it, but I can give you another example in Exodus 20:18. In the book of Exodus 20:18, we read that all the people saw the voice and the voice of the trumpet. When the Lord came down, again, they saw the voice. The emphasis on, is on the voice. It'd be like somebody saying, uh, what, can't you see the, no the nose in your face? Right? So, so the, the expression is reflective of something bigger than the actual uh, piece you're referring to. All right, that's what we're dealing with here. On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. So the first thing that attracts his attention are the lampstands. Seven of them. That is very interesting for us. In the temple of Jerusalem you have outside of the Holy of Holies. And again, those of you who weren't were with us, we have a whole series that deal with the temple. So I'm not going to cover this right now, but I'm, all I'm going to mention is that outside of the Holy of Holies, you have the, the altar of incense, and next to it, the menorah. You familiar with that term? What is a menorah? Seven-branched lampstand. It's one lampstand with seven branches. Here, he has seven lampstands, not one, seven of them. Refl indicative of what? In the Old Covenant, there was only one place where you could worship, the temple. In the New Covenant, you can worship universally. All right? That's why it's significant. Seven of them. The other interesting um, point for us is this. When Antiochus Epiphanes ransacked the temple, we're talking about 100 BC, this is during the Maccabean revolt. The, the last two books of the Old Testament, the Maccabees, is where you read about it. He entered the temple and he desecrated the temple. One other thing he did is he took away the lampstand. All right? He took away the lampstand. So the presence of the lampstand indicates what? A consecrated place. So the space immediately that the Lord is in is consecrated because the lampstand is there. You can find, you can read about it in the first book of Maccabees, chapter 121. And I'll also give you as reference where this is talked about the book of Jeremiah, chapter 52, verse 19. In the book of Sirach, chapter 26, there is a beautiful analogy because it is said, like the light which shines above the holy lampstand are the wife's beauty of face and graceful figure. The whole chapter is about, about describing the, the, the holy wife. What are her, her, uh, her characteristics? Of one of which is talking about her face shining like the light that shines over the lampstand, right? the halo. So we know from St. Paul that the relationship of man and woman are an image of the relationship between the Lord and his church. Hence, the lampstand represents what? The church. And that's why Christ will say a little bit later, the seven lampstands, are the churches, but I want you to understand that the Lord didn't make that up on the spot. He didn't just decide, okay, the lampstand is the church. It is rooted in Scripture, particularly in passages such as these that speak of the relationship between man and woman, which is so dear, so, so near to, our, to, to the heart of our Lord. So it's a marital relationship that is indicated by this imagery. Right, so the lampstand indicates a holy place. The lampstand indicates also the church, the, the bride of Christ. And 
Another interesting um, reference to the lampstand is found in, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 5. If you recall, Daniel was a prophet of the exilic period. He was exiled in Babylon. And while he was there, we read, suddenly opposite the lampstand, the fingers of a human hand appeared writing on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. When the king saw the wrist and hand that wrote his, his face blanched, his thoughts terrified him, his hip joints shook, and his knees knocked. There is a notion of, 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 um, of judgment related to the handwriting on the wall, because that's exactly what it was. It was a judgment on God's part. I am not saying that there is any direct reference between that lampstand and this one. All I'm pointing out to you is that for a Jewish mind who would think in terms of scripture, this may be another idea of lampstand coming up specifically because of the appearance of the Lord. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a ter terrifying appearance. It's an appearance of judgment. Right? And if you think about it, what is the first thing that, that, that the Lord commands John to do? Write. That hand appeared next to the lampstand to write, and here's Jesus commanding him to write. So it is obvious that judgment is foremost in what is going to be written soon. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, our Lord clarifies the intent of the lampstand. What is the lampstand for? for? To hold the lamp that gives light to the house. Remember when he said, when you turn the light on, you don't put it under the bushel, but you put it on the lampstand. So it can give light to the house. So, who is the light? The Lord. What is in the lampstand? The church. The church that sends forth the light of Christ. Alright? St. Germanus, in his commentary in Revelation, states, The church is an earthly heaven in which the super-celestial God dwells and walks about. This is what the church is. And that's why I keep on constantly reminding you to be very, very mindful of the space you enter when you enter into the church. This is not a theater where Mass is a spectacle, and when the Mass is ended, you can get up and start talking. This is a consecrated place where the Lord is present, substantially present. Therefore, it's always holy. Hence, no profane conversation should enter this place. Never. You don't look around and say, Hi, how are you? This is profane. Profane means outside the temple. The only conversation allowed here is prayer. Nothing else is. You wait till you're outside to have that kind of conversation. Here, only prayer and silence. And anything that is required urgently, out of charity. That's it. That's what this place is. Now, arguably this architecture doesn't help because the, the benches you see and the carpets you see and most of the things you see are very common to what you have outside. So visually and mentally, you're not conditioned to realize, whoa, I've entered the holy place. That's a problem. But again, we bought this church from a different group, and God willing, we will be one day able to build a church as it ought to be built. I remember when our patriarch, we're Maronites, so we're Eastern Rites, and our patriarch came to visit, and he said, <laughs> he was quipping, he said, the church in San Diego must be really important, because you guys have the... the um, um, what do you call this room where the MP meets? No, 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 where, where, the, where, the, um, uh, where the senator meets. Meet. The chamber. Yeah, because he saw it was all round. Right? That was his quipping. You must be really important. The point is that the church is not supposed to be architected this way. We'll talk more about architecture as we go through. Remember one thing. When you get up, remain silent. The Lord is still present. You're not silent because of me. You're silent because of Him. He's right here. He's present with His Father, the Holy Spirit, the nine choirs of angels, 
and his blessed mother and all the saints. They're right now looking at you. They see you as I see you, even better. You must realize this when you're in the church. You have to look with your eyes of faith, not the eyes of the body. All right? In rabbinic commentary on Numbers chapter 15, verse 10, there was expressed the hope that when God restores the end time temple, he will also restore the lampstand. So the rabbis, as they commented on the lampstand, stated that when the, te the temple of the end times is rebuilt, the lampstand is restored. When do you think that that temple will be rebuilt? The temple of the end times. Yeah. You're in it. Right now. Is there a lampstand here? Right there. By the tabernacle. That's a lampstand. You're looking at it. So, you see, the, the lampstand is right next to the tabernacle. Why? Because husband and wife sit next to each other, don't they? They're right here. That's what you're looking at. The groom and the bride. Thirteen. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. The background is Daniel chapter 7. Again, we've covered Daniel extensively. I have a series on this. I'm not going to go back and cover it. Um, Daniel chapter 7, you won't, may want to read it if you haven't read it yet. In that chapter, Daniel sees the throne being set up, the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, which is God the Father, and then one like a son of man who comes before him and to him is given dominion and power and glory and all the kingdom. And that's why Jesus most of the time used the title Son of Man, not to indicate that it's meaning me, little Jesus, humble guy, to indicate his divine kingship. That's what this title represents. The divine kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Alright? One like a son of man. Clothed with a long robe and a golden girdle round his breast. Interestingly enough, right here in the picture behind me, the chapter of divine mercy, how is he clothed with? And what color? Have you ever asked yourself why? Is it that Jesus is in his sleeping gown, he just got up and then didn't have time to get dressed? Why is he dressed like that? You remember, he said to St. Faustina, make a picture just as you see me, right? And what is he doing? He's, he seems to be... What, what, what's behind him? The door. Why is there a door behind him? Have you ever asked yourself those questions looking at this picture? He wanted made like that. Why? Why is he dressed in white? He's dressed in white because it is the clothing of the high priest especially for Passover. All right? Especially for Passover. So he is effectively dressed as a priest. He is the high priest. And what is that door that he's entering through? That comes straight from the book of Revelation. We'll see it a little bit later. I come and I knock. And I knock. And whosoever opens the door, I will enter and I will sup with him. This door is the door of your heart. And he's entering into your heart providing to, to bring in his mercy. Okay? That's what this picture is all about. And the two rays that come through, blood and water, what do they represent? Why does he insist on having those two rays coming out of his heart? The red is blood and the white is water. What do they represent? There's actually prayer in that where we say, O oh, blood and water that gushed forth from the side of Jesus, I trust in you. How can we trust in blood and water? Those are inanimate objects. Why do we pray this prayer? Because the blood and water is the church, born from his side. That's why this prayer makes sense. Okay? So he enters into your heart to make you a child of the church, sacramentally, through the Mass, because he's dressed as a priest. That's the purpose of that picture. 
cannot be understood separately from the church and mass. Long robe would be translated from the Greek as a robe reaching down to his feet. And this expression occurs here only in the New Testament, and it occurs seven times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in each case but one, it refers to the attire of the high priest. Right. Definitely priestly attire. There is a similar expression translated as long robes in Mark 12.38, where Jesus warns against the scribes who like to go around in long robes. It's a funny verse if you don't understand it. He says, beware of the scribes who like to, who, who, who like to walk around in long robes. If, if you don't understand this business of long robes, you might have some very different ideas about men walking in long robes. The whole point is that those scribes are pretending to be high priest. That's his point. He doesn't necessarily mean dressed in long robes physically, but their attitude is one of high priest. You honor me, you respect me, you listen to me. It's me, 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 me. Me and me, me. That's the intent of that, of that verse. Now, the high girding denotes the dignity of an important office. Josephus, for instance, who wrote the, the, the history of the Jews and the war of the Jews, speaks of the priest's girdle as being interwoven woven with gold. Conversely, the clothing of a high priest was a reminder of the glory spirit a symbol of the radiance of God. So the clothing of the high priest were given by God to Moses, very, very specifically, and you'll find this description in the book of Exodus, chapter 28, where God goes at great length describing how he wants his priests to be dressed. Four colors are used, etc., etc. But in the book of Sirach, chapter 50, verse 5 through 11, we read, how splendid he was as he appeared from the tent, as he came from within the veil, like a star shining among the clouds, like the full moon at the holiday season, like the sun shining upon the temple, like the rainbow appearing in the cloudy sky, like the blossoms of the branches in springtime, like a lily on the banks of a stream, like the trees of Lebanon in summer, like the fire of incense at the sacrifice, like a vessel of beaten gold studded with precious stones like a luxuriant olive tree thick with fruit, like a cypress standing against the clouds, vested in his magnificent robes and wearing his garments of splendor as he ascended the glorious altar and lent majesty to the court of the sanctuary. That's a description of the high priest as he came forth clothed in his attire. And by the way, if you look at a bishop when he's about to celebrate a high mass, you look at the pope about to celebrate a high mass, the clothing comes to us from the temple. We didn't invent those as part of the dark ages. All right? Comes to us straight from, from um, the... So, so the, the purpose of the clothing was to reflect the glory of God, specifically also the, glory, the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we recognize, therefore, that as he's dressed with a golden girdle on, on his shoulder, typically the high priest would have had right there 12 stones, 12 precious stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is missing here because no longer do we care directly about the 12 tribes of Israel. We care about the entire church. Nonetheless, you have here the attire of a high priest. Now, one thing the priest was supposed to do, especially on Passover, is to take care of the lampstand. He would go to the lampstand and he would trim the wicks. He would take out the old oil and put on new oil. There were not candles, all right? They used oil, olive oil only, to light those lampstands. And all, there were seven of them, and the six, three on each side, would take their light from the one in the middle. And it was said that when the temple was built, fire came from heaven and lit the fire on the altar. And that wick in the middle was lit from the fire on the altar. And from it, the, six, the other six ones would be lit. So the priest would then take out the old oil, put the new one in, and trim the wicks. Meaning what? If this is therefore representation, a figure of, of the church, what is Christ doing? He's constantly 
constantly, as part of his priestly ministry, cleaning the church and pouring in new oil. And since his, his covenant and since his sacrifice is everlasting, graces will always flow in his church. They will never be lacking. Verse 14, his head and hair were white as white wool, white as snow. A clearer translation would read his head, that is his hair. All right, the point is the hair was white as, white as snow. And as I mentioned earlier in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days is said to have hair white as wool and clothing white as snow. Here, Christ takes on characteristics of his Father. And by the way, this is why when, we, when you see images of God the Father, you see him as an old man with hair white as snow. It comes straight from here. Okay? So Christ takes on characteristics of the Father to indicate the common nature between them, the divine nature. Another important uh, point that is connected with this color is found in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord says, Come now, let us, things, let us set things right, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they may become white as snow. Though they be crimson, crimson red. Is it crimson or crimson? Thank you. Crimson red, they may become white as wool. So the white is an indication of the redemptive mission of Christ. I said earlier, he's constantly replacing the old oil by noon, and here's another way of looking at it. The white indicates that no matter how, how, how grave our sins may be, provided we have not sins against the Holy Spirit, Christ's grace will always renew us, will always bring us back, will always clean us in his church. That's the apparition, I insist. This is Christ appearing in his church, not outside. That's very important. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31, we read, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained by virtuous living. And also in Leviticus 19:32, we read, Stand up in the presence of the aged and show respect for the old. Thus shall you fear your God. I am the Lord. And the indication, therefore, here is the whiteness indicates his statue also. His, the statue he, he, he reached and the respect and the veneration and adoration we owe to Christ. All right? His eyes were like a flame of fire. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, we read, His body was like chrysolite, his face shone like lightning, his eyes were like fiery torches, his arms and feet looked like burnished bronze, and his voice sounded like the roar of a multitude. And this is the same apparition of the Lord, the same uh, basically, person that appeared to Daniel appears here as well. And the f eyes that were like a flame of fire, don't take that to mean physically like a flame of fire. Not like there's like two torches of, of flames coming out of Christ's eyes. The indication here is the penetrating gaze of Christ. Right? It's, just as fire penetrates everything, if it's intense enough, so it is with the gaze of Christ. It penetrates everything. He sees everything as it is. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. The etymology of the Greek word bronze is difficult. We're not completely sure what bronze represents here. If the basic roots of the, the compounds word are, that make this word are copper and furnace, it could refer to bronze ore and the process of smelting. If the second root is taken to mean frankincense, then the compound is an amber-colored metal. Interestingly enough, the Syriac version takes it to be a metal from Lebanon, but it doesn't say what. The Syriac version of the text. In any case, there is one important reference that we can go back to, which is in the book of Exodus. When the Jews murmured against God, God sent serpents who bit them and they died. And then they asked Moses to intercede for them, and, Moses, and God told Moses, make a serpent of bronze. Make a bronze serpent and lift it up. And when they look at it, they will be healed. Incidentally, that's why doctors have as our symbol a serpent. It's the bronze serpent. It's Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the symbol of medicine. So here, the bronze indicates the 
transformed, the transfigured nature of Christ. Okay, he is the one that is like us, yet different. It also indicates stability and strength. He will never be broken. His kingdom will never be broken. His voice was like the sound of many waters. The same description is used for the voice of God in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2. And it's also used for the great multitude in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Anytime you're dealing with a Jehovah Witness who tried to convince you that Jesus is not God, you can always refer to this text and show, him, show them that just as in Ezekiel, this expression is used of the voice of God, so it is used here, the voice of Christ. Okay? That will help them think. Because remember, Jehovah Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. He's just another angel or some such thing. They're not Christian. Now, of course, it's the, it is there to suggest the awe-inspiring force of a waterfall. Anybody gone to Niagara Falls? All right, you've taken the boat. Did you take the boat? that going to get you right in the middle of this thing? And you stand and you're awe. You're in awe at what you're seeing. That's what this expression is suggesting. Not that when he opens his mouth, you hear water flowing. Don't take it too literalistically. Otherwise, it sounds very funny. You know, he's got fire coming from his eyes, and when he opens his mouth, there's water gurgling through. And No. Those are expressions used to indicate the power. In other words, when he speaks, when he speaks, he speaks with such authority that you are awed. St. Teresa of Avila said of, interior, in, of, of, of the supernatural manifestation of Christ in the soul, she said that when Christ speaks to the soul, if you're in prayer in in, and you're in contemplation and you're praying, if Christ speaks to the soul, immediately all the powers of the soul are united and quieted. And the words that are spoken by Christ are burned in the soul, so to speak. They will never be erased. You will never forget them. And they will retain the same strength as on the first day you heard them. That's the power of the voice of Christ. That's what's being indicated here. Okay? We, because of the distance, tend to ascribe literal meaning to those images, and then we end up with a construction that really makes no sense. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Sovereign control over the churches. No one can take them away from him. In the ancient world, stars were viewed as powers that determine the course of the world and control a human destiny in a variety of ways. What's well, not in the ancient world only, today as well. Shall I remind you that uh, being attached to your horoscope and reading it daily is a sin? If you're doing it, drop it. Today. Any notion that the stars or some other object has some control on your life is an attack against the first commandment. I am the Lord your God, you will not have any other God but me. So, if you're doing it, please stop and go to confession. So, Christ holds the stars. In one sense, he holds the whole universe in his hand. Everything is given to him. The, the right hand, sorry. And the other interesting notion, <clears throat> and a point that we can make here is that the seven stars make up the open cluster of stars known as the Pleiades. Poetically, thought of it in the ancient world as being, the, the, the Pleiades was thought of it as an ancient one as being bound together on a chain like a necklace. And the Pleiades forming part of the constellation Taurus are mentioned in Job, in Job chapter 9, verse 5 through 9, 38, chapter 38, verse 31 through 33, and in Amos 5 through 8. In spring, which is the season of Easter, the sun is right in the middle of the Pleiad. Okay? The reason why I'm pointing this out to you is because there's this cosmological dimension to everything we're talking about. Because the universe is a temple. It's the macro temple. 
for adoring and praising the Lord. Alright? So here's Christ standing in the middle of the stars and holding them in his hand. <clears throat> Another really important uh, um, uh, aspect of this is that the emperors had, would stamp on their coins seven stars. And the seven stars represented the divinity of those emperors. And for anyone living during that time, seeing, seeing this written in a time where emperor worship was demanded, that was a direct, direct, explicit attack against emperor worship. And we'll get more into this as soon as we start talking about the churches and see what situation they were, they were and what difficulties they had to face. The last point I'll make here is that the correspondence between stars and lampstands seem to indicate that the churches have a position in the heavenly or spiritual temple in the midst of which Christ is ruling and present. That makes sense to us. We understand that intuitively. Some of you who belong to the Latin Rite tend to kind of go from one parish to the other, right? Because you're trying to find a parish that, where the Mass is better celebrated, etc. There is a sense in which you understand that some parishes are different than others, are more graced, so to speak. Well, there's a, there's a reality behind this. It isn't just your intuition. It has a foundation. From his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword. This denotes the irresistible power of judgment. The two-edged sword is used for judgment. Again, don't take it as if visually St. John is seeing a two-edged sword with the handle stuck in the mouth of our Lord. I mean, that would make it very difficult for the Lord to speak, wouldn't it? Try to speak with a two-edged sword in your mouth. Don't try that at home. Yeah, you're going to have, a, you know, some... So, of course, this is not, again, a physical representation. It is used to indicate something about the words of Christ. The two-edged sword, the sword is used for what? It is a, a, a tool of... It's a weapon. It is a weapon for war, and it is a weapon of conquest. So what is issuing out of the mouth of Christ is judgment. And a judgment that cannot be stopped. That's what this represents. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4, we read, He will strike the land with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Again, God doesn't have a rod stuck in his mouth. It's his word. In the book of Wisdom, Chapter 18, verse 15 through 16, we read, Your all-powerful word from heaven's royal throne bounded, a fierce warrior into the doomed land, bearing the sharp sword of your inexorable decree. Bearing the sharp sword of your inexorable decree. It is the word of judgment coming down. In, you will find the same thing. I will just give you the references. I will read them in uh, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1 and 2. You can also take a look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where the same idea recurs. Uh, a writer by the name of Peterson puts it this way. I think he has a really good point. He says, The power that the world acknowledges comes out from the mouth of a gun. The power that the person of faith respects comes out from the mouth of Christ. And that's the difference between a believer and unbeliever. His face was like the sun in full strength. We need to know that it's not just his face. So his face was brilliant as the sun and then everything else was dark. No, the brilliance surrounded him. That's, by the way, halos. Right? That's where it comes from. That's why we have halos on pictures of saints. Because they are reflecting the light of Christ. So there's brilliance around them. This plus... The, the light that uh, surrounded Moses in Exodus uh, gives you the reason why we put halos around the saints. During the transfiguration, we read that Christ's face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzlingly white. You find that in Matthew 17 too. Uh, also, take a look at Exodus 34:29 and Judge 5:31, where you can see the same kind of imagery. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. In the Old Testament, there was a strong belief that for sinful men to see God, he was to die. If you see God, you die. 
As references, you have Exodus 19:21, 33:20, the book of Judges 6, chapter 6, 22:23. Again, Exodus 19:21, 33:20, the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 22:23. There are many others. The reason why this was so in the Old Testament was because people were not in a state of grace. Heaven was not open, therefore they could not be in a state of grace. Now St. John is in a state of grace. We may suppose so, fairly safely. Why is it that he fell before him as though dead? Why is it that someone who is in a state of grace still falls before the Lord as though dead? Because when Christ shines his light on us, as St. John of the Cross explains, when you have a room and you're cleaning the room and you look at it under electric light, it looks very clean. But let the, shine, let the sun shine its rays through the window in the morning, and the first thing you will see are the little pieces of dust that float up in the air that you didn't see before. So likewise, when Christ shines his light directly on the soul, the soul sees what? All its defects. And it is, the soul, therefore, is... Um, it effectively loses its strength and recognizes how little it is compared to the majesty of the Lord. And the only appropriate bodily gesture is to look as though dead. All right? That is very important. If you notice when priests are ordained, what do they do? Um, where do they get that from? Did we no, we didn't. This comes straight from here. That's why they are flat on their faces. All right? And for those of you who are in a very good habit or of, of praying before the, the Blessed Sacrament, I do wish for you that you start praying with your body. So you, if you can't. In other words, you can be standing, you can be sitting, you can be kneeling, and you can be flat on your face. This is the Lord. But do it as the Spirit calls you to do it. You will not be flat on your face simply because you think, okay, let me do it for two minutes. I'm, I'm, you know, I need more blood circulation here. Or I want to hug the floor. I haven't done that in some time. Or I feel so warm and this is refreshing. No. Something within you, something within your soul will, will, will make you see yourself and see the Lord and you're on your face. But we, he laid his right hand upon me saying, so the laying of the hand is, what is, what is okay, what happens? He lays his hand, what happens to St. John? He gets up, right? So what happens when the, when the laying of the hand happened, took place? Power and strength is communicated. Okay? The laying of the hand is a physical gesture that communicates power and strength. That's why when a priest is ordained, there's a laying of the hands. It isn't a symbolic thing. It is an actual, real gesture that communicates power and strength from the one who holds it to the one who is receiving it. Without the laying of the hand, the consecration is still missing. It has to happen. And that's why, for instance, we do not recognize the order of priesthood of the Anglican Church because the, pro the apostolic succession has been lost. They can't tell who's who. But we still recognize the order of the priests of the Orthodox churches because they have preserved the apostolic succession. Therefore, the laying of the hand is, is real. Fear not, I am the first and the last. In Isaiah, 44, chapter, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, the Lord declares, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Again, another verse that you can use to establish the divinity of Christ. And St. John uses this phrase 24 times in his gospel. 24 times. And it's used only 12 times in all the other gospels put together. So you can see the, the, the Johannic um, reference here. The interesting thing is that the Greek word last is not neuter, but masculine, indicating not a thing, but a person. 
Right, so the lash is not just a thing, it's a person, which is the person of Christ. No, in that case, he used just the word first and last, not Alpha and Omega. The interesting thing is that the fear not, do not be afraid. How many times Christ said, do not be afraid? The first word that John Paul II said after he was elevated to the papacy was, do not be afraid. Fear not. Okay? Fear not. And this was, God told Abraham not to fear right before the ratification of the covenant. He told Moses not to fear in Exodus 14 when the approaching Egyptians were to attack and they were stuck against the water. Fear not. Um, in, in the second book of Samuel, chapter 9, verse 7, David instructs Meribal, who's the son of Jonathan, and he's a cripple, not to fear. He's going to restore him. So as soon as Christ says, fear not, do not be afraid, he doesn't stop meaning as a consolation, as there, there now, calm down. The way we may be saying. He means... He means that he is going to take action to either establish the covenant or restore the one to whom he's saying, fear not. It's a word of, it's, it's a great word of power to say, fear not. And the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forever. So this is an affirmation of the death and resurrection of our Lord. And it is effectively the risen Christ that raises St. John up on his feet. That's an important aspect for us to realize that this is what Christ does constantly in his priestly mission. He raises us all up. When we fall in sin, he's there, fear not, and he raises us back up. So you have here hidden the, 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 the idea of the sacrament of reconciliation, confession. When you go to confession, it is the risen Christ you're going to see. You have fallen down, he extends his hand, and he raises you back up and says, fear not. All right? You receive the graces of the risen, risen Lord. I have the keys of death and Hades. Interesting. Death and Hades. Remember that there are two abode of the dead. Hades and Gehenna. Different places. Gehenna comes from the valley of... Um, it, it means Gehenon. Gi is valley. Henon was the valley in which um, the worst of all the kings of Israel, his name escapes me right now, sacrificed a thousand child, a thousand children to Moloch, including his own. And right after he did that, God said, no matter what you guys do from now on, Jerusalem is doomed. It will be destroyed because of what he did. He killed a thousand, he sacrificed a thousand children in that valley. Uh, Manasseh, Manasseh, King Manasseh. And once Manasseh did that, I think it's Manasseh. Don't hold me, don't quote me on this. I need to go check. I think it's Manasseh. When he did that, God commanded the destruction of Jerusalem. And there was nothing that would change his mind. That valley became then, as far as people were concerned, cursed. And they only put in it what? Garbage. It became a dump where they would burn the garbage. And if you were to walk around that place, you'd smell garbage burning. And that's why it became therefore an illustration of hell. Okay? By the way, Baal Zebul, Baal Zebul, Baal Zebul. Zebul is a word that means garbage. Bingo. Zbele. And from there you have the word, the Lord of the garbage, or essentially the Lord of the deep, and God associated with Satan. That's Gehenna. Hades is the abode of the dead who were awaiting the gates of heaven to be opened. Because until Christ came, the gates of heaven were closed. Well, where are the good guys to go? Well, you're not going to put them in hell. Well, where are they going to go? Hades. When he gave the keys to Peter, he said what? Right? And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, against the church. He means that I'm going to be able to open Hades and let people come out. Well, here's the problem. Hades is open because Christ died and rose. Why is he giving him, why does he say, I have the keys to death and Hades, if it's empty? Obviously, it is not empty. So who's there? 
that's where you, this is how you can argue in favor of purgatory. Because that's what it is. Alright? Hades become purgatory. The place where those who die in a state of grace, they have no moral, moral sin on their soul, but for, who have not yet atoned for all their sins, meaning they, there is temporal punishment, they have something to undergo, go there in that place of purification. And Christ has the key, and he gave it to Peter. So that's why our prayers can help the one, those who are in purgatory, because Peter, the church, has the key. All right? Now write what you see, what is, and what is to take place hereafter. John is to write everything, and, that, and, that, and what he has to write, the whole thing is to be sent to all seven churches. It isn't that a small passage is sent to each church. The entire revelation is sent to the seven churches, and by extension, to all of the churches, to the church at large. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There are many, many interpretations that are being given to the seven, to the angels. Why? Because in the next chapter, when the Lord commands John to write, he will say, write to the angel of Ephesus. Write to the angel of Sardis. He's writing to the angel. What, who's that angel? Who's that angel to whom he's writing? And so some will say, it's the local priest. Some will say, it is the spirit of the whole community. Some will say, it's the bishop. I don't think we need any of that complication. St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that each one of us receive graces from the hand of the Lord through our guardian angel. There isn't one grace that comes to you that doesn't come through your guardian angel. Everything that you receive from the hand of the Lord comes to you through your guardian angel. Without exception. Likewise, every community, every parish, receives the graces from the Lord through an angel. What does that mean? It means that it is the duty of that angel to help us understand what God wants for us. And the way it works, therefore, is that the grace is communicated to the angel, and from that angel to us, to the priest, and then to us. But if that's so, why is it that God is instructing St. John to write to the angel? Why is it that God doesn't tell the angel first, and the angel tells St. John? For a very simple reason. And it's a very important one. It is key. In the Old Testament, everything that happened, happened from God to the angel, to Moses, to Aaron, to the people. God, angels, Moses, Aaron, people. In this order. The angels were far above us. And when people of the Old Testament will lay before an angel and do them obedience, obeisance, or venerate them, or adore them as a god, the angels never refused it. They never told them, don't do that. They accepted it. But in the book of Revelation, we'll see, we'll see it twice. Twice St. John sees an angel and he's so blown away by him that he just falls flat on his face before the angel. And twice he's told, don't do that. I am a fellow servant. I am a fellow servant. Now, under the new dispensation, under the new covenant, no longer are we inferior to the angels. We're their equals. Better yet, St. Paul says, don't you know that we shall judge angels. And he also adds, in speaking about the mystery of Christ, which is the church, he says, the mystery of Christ is the church, and in her, the angels long to gaze. Why? Because it is God's plan that even the angels will learn from the church. Even the angels will learn from the church. Makes sense, doesn't it? Who's the church? She's his bride. 
Who's the angels? They're his children. The children learn from the mother. That is why you will see the, the Lord telling St. John, an apostle, write to the angel. Even the angel is supposed to learn from the bishop. This goes to show you the power that a bishop has. There isn't a man that is more powerful than a bishop on this planet. There isn't. It is truly a sad state of affairs that we do not pray to the angels. We do not invoke them. We do not ask them to help us. We do not ask them to assist us against our greatest enemy, which is Satan. Every church has an angel. Yet none of us even is aware of his existence. Every parish, I mean, right now, there is a parish, this parish, St. Ephraim, has a guardian angel. And we ignore them constantly. As a matter of fact, we stop saying the prayer that was, that Pope um, Pius XIII, was it? Leo XIII? Leo, not Pius. Leo XIII asked to be prayed after every Mass. The St. Michael prayer was supposed to be said every after every after every Mass, invoking the Prince of the Angels. So we would do well to recall that, and if we have not yet begun to foster a real devotion to our Garden Angel, why don't we start today? And if you don't know the little prayer, Angel of God, my Guardian dear, to whom God's love entrusts me here, ever this day be at my side, to lighten, guard, to rule and guide. Learn it. You can find it on the internet. If you can't find it, talk to me after. Angels and stars are associated with government and rule in the scripture, in scriptures. Uh, Genesis 37, verse 9. Book of Judge, chapter 5, verse 20. Daniel, chapter 8, verse 9 and 11. Chapter 10, verse 13. Chapter 20, verse 21. In all those instances, you see that both stars and angels are associated with government and rule. Effectively, for the ancient mind, the universe is a temple, big church. And you have servants who take care of the church, who prepares it for the liturgy. They come in and they, they make sure the altar is clean, there, there are flowers, and that the candles are ready, and everything is, is in place and set for the liturgy. This is what we have here. Well, there are angels who are making sure that the universe is always ready to celebrate the liturgy. The reason why the universe exists is that we can praise God. All right? That's what they're there for. That's their mission, is to make sure the universe is running as it ought, for the praise and glory of God. So now let's just back up a little bit and look at this whole chapter, just finished chapter 1, and see what happened. In chapter 1, St. John is stuck on the Isle of Patmos. While he's there, and he's in exile because of persecution, it's Sunday, he can't celebrate the liturgy, and then he has a vision where Christ comes in judgment. And he's going to tell him how he's going to judge his church first. That's what we're going to deal with right after. And then how he's going to chastise the world. And if the world doesn't respond, how he's going to punish the world. And after all this judgment and punishment goes through, we then see the mystery revealed. The bride coming down from heaven, the woman closed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And then the bride and the groom are revealed. Apocalypsis. What we saw now is the setting, the preparation for all of this. And if what I've told you holds, we should see across all of those books the same theme recur over and over again. The covenant being recalled, judgment being uh, issued, condemnation being issued, curses and blessings across the entire spectrum. Keep in mind Christ and his church. And as long as you do those two things, you keep those two things in mind, and the liturgy, you're going to be able to navigate through the book. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, 
please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.